So I am a recovering rugby addict. And um, at a time in my life, just so emotionally invested in the sport of rugby. And I've had to do a lot to kind of weed out some of the, the, the hardcore kind of passions and, and uh, fervor that goes with it. Uh, I was coaching rugby uh, and, and just so invested in the sport. One of the things that I love so much about rugby is rugby players' inability to form proper sentences and <laughs> to only speak in sport cliches. And uh, if you've watched any bit of rugby uh, or sport, you will know that uh, after sports matches, there's the mandatory kind of interview with the man of the match. Like for rugby, he's just played like 80 minutes. He's taken significant blows, uh, multiple blows to his head. And now he's going to speak on national TV. And I always laugh at some of these cliches. You know, it was a game of two halves. It's like, yes, you know, of course, every game of rugby is a game of two halves. And, you know, I love this one. You know, in the end, the team with the most points won. It's like, you know, every game, the team with the most points wins. And they, you know, just uh, time and time again, you just hear the same old cliches coming up over and over and over again. And they're always good to laugh at. I enjoy laughing at, at the cliches and going, yeah, uh, there we go. Here's another cliche, another cliche. Sports people are great at cliches. Christians are great at cliches. Talking about like, maybe you've heard it as like Christianese. Maybe you came across some Christians who just said some stuff and you've maybe heard the similar phrase and you're just like, what the heck are they talking about by being washed clean by the blood of the lamb? Maybe you're one of those guys, you like, heard this person talking at varsity and they said, yo, I was born again, you know, praise the lamb. And, and we use these phrases, yeah, I'm saved. And you're going like, what the heck does that mean? And no wonder you go like, Christians don't believe in science because of the, you know, the funny things that keep coming out of their mouths over and over and over and these kind of cliches, this kind of Christian language uh, that we speak about. And we've been doing this series called The Reason for Everything, where we've uh, not really been looking so much at the Bible, but the evidence for uh, this worldview, or, or the reason that we have everything in this world, how it came into being, and we're looking at things like uh, the, how we can trust the Bible, the historical proof of Jesus, uh, the historical evidence of his resurrection, all of those things. One of the incredible things that we've been looking at is how people who experienced and believed that, how their lives were fundamentally changed. And I wonder if you've been wondering, like, how does, how does the belief and the knowledge of those things translate into people's lives being so different in the light of that knowledge? You've heard the word testimony. Maybe uh, somebody's tried to tell you and you heard the word testament, you're like, what the heck is going on here? But it's, it's so important to realize, and, and if you think of some of the things that we've been speaking through through the series, just knowing that the Bible is historically accurate, actually has no bearing on your life whatsoever. It doesn't fundamentally change who you are. 
Think of some of the things that we preach through. Just having like a biblical view of gender uh, doesn't, doesn't have a, an impact on who you are or change you as an individual. If you think of what we spoke about last week, about how many people died for believing in Jesus? Kind of what, what happened that, that that became their reality? And if I think of my own story, my mom's here tonight and I, and I you know, she's part of my story, uh, but my mom was a believer. Uh, she came to faith in Jesus, some of that language that we use, and we will explain it uh, throughout tonight with what we're looking at. And when I entered this world, oh, what a great moment, she then decided to raise me in the way that she knew best, uh, which was uh, taking me to church and, and trying to raise me up in, in the ways of the Lord. And uh, I am a, a very typical nerd. Uh, I'm not ashamed of that. And um, I just enjoyed Sunday school. Uh, I got a number of uh, prizes for Sunday school. If church isn't kind of part of your background or things like that, uh, we went to quite a traditional uh, church that had things like Sunday school and attendance awards and uh, memory verse prizes and things like that. And, you know, because I, I kind of like that kind of stuff, I got good at it. I mean, and again, if, if you know anything about traditional churches, once I was even the narrator for the Sunday school Christmas play, Right? Okay, not everybody gets that, okay? Only one person a year gets to be the narrator. Uh, I even made it in as the narrator for the Sunday school play. None of that made me a Christian. And I realized that. And uh, it, it happened on a, on a scripture union camp, a, a Christian organization. And one night just really realizing, and this was the phrase, and it became so real for me. The phrase was, Craig, you know about Jesus. You can tell uh, many stories about the person Jesus. You can even navigate the Bible to find where those stories are, but you do not know Jesus. Just the facts hadn't changed my life. Something else needs to happen. And this is at the center of our faith. It is what we call the gospel, the good news, a, a proclamation that something happened and that changes people. We read a passage of scripture last week. It's going to come up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15, one of the very first recorded things that the church kind of put down uh, as important to them. And it says this, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 from verse 3 and 4, for what I received I pass on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel, that phrase, the good news that something happened. And we're going to investigate that tonight because it's something around that that has changed the world. It's that. When you hear the cliche of saved, I'm a Christian, I'm born again, I have a testimony, uh, that Christianese that we use and have adopted, it's rooted in that. And at the center of the gospel is the cross. 
And I know that we have a very glamorized version of the cross. I wonder how many people here tonight have a piece of a cross on them as a piece of jewelry tonight. A couple of you. That's great. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, you, who's got uh, crosses up somewhere in their house as, uh, as decoration? Again, a whole bunch of us. This is something that is really important to us as believers. Uh, but uh, really to understand the cross properly is that it was pretty much at the time the cruelest thing imaginable. If someone in your family died by crucifixion on the cross, your family was shamed. There couldn't be a worse thing to happen to someone or to your family. That was public humiliation. Like there was, there was nothing that could top being publicly crucified on a cross. A really hectic thing that could have happened. And so because of that, you, you know, the cross wasn't this beautiful, kind of lovely, like nice veneered finished thing like we've got on the stage. It was a very bloody public execution. And you want to kind of think what's a modern day application of uh, execution on a cross. It's the electric chair. It's being hung in the gallows. That's what it was. And so people ask the question, well, why did it have to be the cross? Why is that at the center of Christianity? Why the cross? Why did Jesus one have to die? Why did it have to be on the cross uh, you know, why couldn't God just say you're forgiven and just move on? Why did it have to be like that? Can't we just leave the cross out? And then even then, the thinking about it, thousands and thousands of people die every single day. Thousands of people died by crucifixion. In fact, there's a record of 6,000 people being crucified on one day. When Jesus died on the cross, there were two people who died the exact same way next to him. So why, why was that specific death so significant? And why are we saying that that death has meaning? And that's good for us to get into that. So we introduced you guys to this a couple of weeks ago when Oh, we propose to you a potential scenario, which is what would happen if you had to go out into one of the busy malls here in Joburg and stop and ask people the question, what do you think is wrong with the world? And people are going to give a whole bunch of answers. We know that one of the answers that is not going to come up is nothing. The world is perfect. No, people are going to respond and say tsunamis. We know that uh, Indonesia is really uh, reeling from a, a very recent tsunami. People say tsunamis, uh, earthquakes, fires, droughts. Uh, they'll say that's what's wrong with the world. Uh, people might give answers in, in kind of that category. Or people might say, well, uh, it's murder, rape, greed, corruption. Uh, that's what's wrong with the world. And people kind of list that in, in those kind of categories. And if you really boil uh, those down, you're left with two major concepts. And the one is sin. We know that the world is affected by sin. That's what's wrong with the world. And we know what is wrong with us is, is ultimately death. We spoke about those two huge problems that everyone is facing. They're significant problems. And that's what we're trying to deal with. And if those are the problems, 
And if God exists, it makes sense that that's what God would deal with. And the solution for those problems would come from God. Uh, You guys know I I speak about them a lot, uh, my kids. And uh, we've got a playroom. It's... uh, uh, I think I've shared this before. Those of you without kids, and you, you, you're still going to get there. Playroom's not a great idea. Often, uh, we come into the playroom, and uh, it looks like a hurricane has come through there. Uh, not to make fun of what it looks like when a hurricane does come through an area, but it looks like a hurricane has come through our playroom. And it is a significant mess. And um, again, those of you with parents, you'll know this. Uh, when it is such a mess, and I say to my three-year-old, uh, Edith, you need to go and tidy up the playroom. She kind of looks up at me, and uh, stuff is registering. And she is great, but she does attempt to tidy up this significant mess. But she'll kind of pack one book away and see a book that she hasn't read in a while. She'll go, ooh, and then sits down and starts reading the book. Uh, and you have to kind of keep going through and engaging in the process, uh, tidy up the playroom, tidy up the playroom. You know, it might not be a book, but it's like teaching over here. And, oh, look, and uh, now needs to play with this toy that uh, she suddenly found in the, the big mess pile. It is impossible for me to expect uh, my three-year-old who created the mess to be able to order it like it perfectly was. The problem in the mess is just too great for her to figure out and order. The problem of sin and death is just so significant. Has anybody managed to figure out how not to die? Do we know of a person who has been able to solve that reality which is inevitable for every single person? And the answer is no. And has anybody kind of figured out how to kind of make sure that the entire globe has perfect weather for uh, everybody to enjoy? And again, the answer is no. If you think of the problems of the world, we can't solve what's wrong with the world. And we cannot solve what's wrong with us. It's just too great for us. Which is why if you think of the example of my playroom, the only way that it gets ordered like it should be is when my wife steps in and tidies it up, and is able to fix the problem. And in the same way, the problem of sin and death is so great that the only way for it to be fixed is if God steps into that mess, if the solution comes from God. Think of the song by John Lennon, just the song Imagine. He uh, proposed, imagine that there's no God, no heaven. You know, thinking that if the solution came from us, then there wouldn't be any pain in the world. But we know that does not work. Because people with that worldview, who genuinely believe that there is no God, uh, millions upon millions of people uh, continue to die at the hands of people who believe that there is no such thing as God. Those solutions don't work. The gospel, the good news of Christianity, is how God loved us by stepping into our mess, stepping into our problem of sin and death, dealing with that. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Romans chapter 5. Uh, there is a, um, a biblical scholar by the name of D.A. Carson, and uh, he calls this passage that we're going to read the center of the Bible. 
And uh, while you're turning there and finding that passage, I just want to make a quick plug. D.A. Carson's one of my favorite uh, biblical scholars. He's going to be in Joburg next week. And um, he's got a two-day conference, Monday, Tuesday. But on Monday night, uh, he's doing an open session. Uh, he's going to be teaching on the book of Isaiah. Uh, a phenomenal Christian uh, author, uh, a great speaker and a theologian. And uh, it's going to be at Edenvale Baptist, uh, 7 o'clock. I'm going to be going through. Uh, I have a couple of spaces in my car. Uh, if any of you would like to go to this event, just come and uh, chat to me afterwards. We can make a plan. It is really going to be a very informative uh, evening with some really, really good teaching. Okay, Romans chapter 5, uh, 5 verse 6 to 11. This specific passage is what he calls the very center of the Bible. And we're going to walk through it, uh, going kind of a few verses at a time. But we're going to be starting at verse 6. And this is what it says. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, Two phrases or two words in there that people don't like. Powerless, ungodly. And this kind of verse uh, declares and points out that all of us are powerless and all of us are ungodly. And you might want to kind of push back at that statement and go, no, 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 no. I am one, not powerless, and two, I'm not ungodly. And the fact is, every single one of us is very much powerless and ungodly. On Friday, uh, my three-year-old, I'm not going to use her throughout the entire sermon, but uh, she did something uh, really interesting on, on Friday. She was very unhappy with her older sister. Very, very unhappy. And so, uh, look, some of you know her. Sweetest little thing. She prays uh, at all our mealtime prayers. And she is great at praying. She doesn't just do the standard, uh, thank you Jesus for my food. Uh, she's actually quite good at praying for things in her day. And genuinely fostering it. She brings us a prayer book and she says, please can we read from our prayer book tonight? She, there's a genuine growing love for the things of the Lord. But she snuck into her older sister's room with a big cup of water and poured it all over her bed and soaked her bed and her blankets. Silently, snuck in and out of there, didn't tell a soul. Only afterwards, when it was much later in the day that we saw the wet bed and we went, Edith, and she owned up to it. Where she learned that, I have no idea. Uh, On one hand, I'm actually quite impressed uh, with... uh, just her ruthlessness uh, and dealing with her older sister. But you just need to look at our, our kids and go, where, where did you learn that? Like I'm raising you in the Lord. Where did you learn that behavior? But in all of us, there's this brokenness. You might think that uh, you're this great person, but let's have some confession time. How many of us broke a traffic law this week? You went over the speed limits. You did a rolling stop at a four-way or a stop street. So, hey, there we go. Hands are going up. How many of you are lying? Because your hands aren't good. Okay. There we go. <laughs> How many of us tried to justify that law-breaking? I've got to get to a meeting. I'm running late. Hey, some hands going up. We're just kind of pretending you're stretching. 
this isn't really the safest area, so I'm just not going to stop fully at this stop street. Okay, we kind of justify um, what we're doing, but what we are doing is we're breaking the law. We are lawbreakers. And we have this uh, incredible habit by justifying our behavior so we don't think of ourselves as bad as what we actually are. I needed to break that law because I wanted to get to that place on time. I'm tired. I want to get home or whatever. And we really think of ourselves far better than what we actually are. And we don't like to admit the fact that I am ungodly. That there is a problem inside of me. Because we just uh, relabel it uh, a mistake, just a lapse, you know. It was just a minor indiscretion. It's how we label kind of the, the, that brokenness inside of us. You know, the world loves reality TV shows. Some of the very popular ones are like The Voice and uh, uh, America's Got Talent, UK's Got Talent, uh, kind of those things with all those singing shows. And while there are some incredible performers and people that make it on there, uh, if you're like me, you also love looking at kind of some of the blooper reels. Some of you are chuckling because you're just as uh, wicked in, in, in that regard. But you get these people, and I love also how they kind of talk it up. Because you've got this person, and they're surrounded by their friends and family, and how yeah, I've been singing from a long, for a long time, and you, you know, my friends think I'm great, and they've encouraged me. Uh, my mom's here. You know, they're supporting me. And there's all this hype, and then they kind of walk out onto stage, and it is awful. It is really, really, really bad singing. And you wonder, like, what went on in the family that they actually said, this is a good idea for you to go and sing on international TV. And that stuff gets onto the internet and a billion people get to kind of see how somehow your friends and family just misled you completely. But those people walk out there, the, the best is one of these, these friends, the, these two girls that end up like punching each other on stage when the crowd is booing at them because they're actually just that bad. But they were encouraged to be out on that stage because people told them that they were good enough. And the gap between that person and someone who genuinely can sing, it's massive. But that's the kind of same gap that exists when we think of our sin and our brokenness, our ungodliness and who God is. Just as they're deceived around really thinking they can sing. That level of deception is with us in thinking that we're actually not that bad. I'm not such a bad person. An experiment that we talked about. What do we do if we take out the top 10 most evil people on the planet? Is the world less evil? You know, are we done with the problem of evil? What happens if we take the next 100 well, you know, the top 20% of all people. And, and, and eventually what's going to come down to it is either you or me are going to be the most evil people or person on the planet. We need to understand that there is a massive gap between who God is and, and me and my sin. Think about this example. Is a, a, imagine a super hot day. Uh, you are really, really thirsty. Maybe you've been working in the garden all day and, and your mouth is like that sticky dry because you, you're just that thirsty. 
And, and I come out to you with this really big uh, glass of Coke filled with ice. And I mean, it's just super, super ice cold. And I say, you know, here, have this to drink. And you're like, oh, thank you, Craig. And I go, but just so you know, I put a tiny bit of urine in it. How many of you are going to want to drink that Coke? Okay. No. All right, because you would admit that that big glass of Coke is forever tainted. You can't drink that. Okay, it's ruined. And that's what we're talking about. Even just a little bit, we fall short of God and his holiness. That's why scripture says all are powerless. All are ungodly. Even if you think you're not so bad, glass of Coke with some urine in it. Okay, you can't drink it. Same thing. Uh, Sorry for that example. (laughs) Verses 7 and 8. Goes on to say, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So acknowledging our powerlessness, acknowledging our ungodliness, in that space, in that mess, that is when God chose to die for us while we were enemies. So imagine a scenario. You're driving um, past the river, whatever, you're walking past the river, and you see someone in there splashing around, uh, acting like they're drowning. And you go, what are you doing? No, I'm doing this for you. You're drowning for me. And that makes no sense. No, but I love you. Okay, that seems like a crazy scenario. Uh, But if it is the other way around, that if you are genuinely drowning and somebody dives into the river to save you, that does make a a lot more sense. If you think of, um, we've all seen movies uh, that have a, a torture scene in it. And uh, we've seen and we've heard stories of people being able to endure a significant amount of pain, pain inflicted on them. But people can't handle it when somebody else comes in to take the pain on their behalf. Uh, that changes things altogether. A loved one comes in and, and now they have to take the pain. No, people confess very quickly or give up information very quickly in the moment. That's what we're talking about with Jesus. Is that he dives in to save us in the river. He's the one that takes uh, the punishment for us. He's the one that takes the pain. But then again, why the cross? Couldn't have God just kind of waved a magic wand? Couldn't he have, have just gone, okay, forgiven? But if you think about it, true forgiveness comes at a cost. True forgiveness comes at a cost. Maybe you've experienced the situation. I hope you haven't. But you loan your car to someone and you get a phone call and they say, Yo, Craig, I'm so sorry, but... Um, I drove into someone with your car. I've crashed your car. Two things are going to happen. Or one of two things. One, you make them pay for all the damages. 
Or two, you say, it's okay. You're not going to pay for a cent of this. I'm going to cover and pay for everything with the car crash. But notice something that doesn't happen with this is the car doesn't miraculously just get fixed, right? Someone has to pay for the damage. Either the person who crashed the car or you have to uh, cover the costs for the accident. We all know that when uh, we have uh, been hurt by someone, if there's been relational fallout or if there's been pain or conflict or something like that, someone's had to bear the price or pay for that forgiveness. Either you make them pay and you just make them know what it has cost you, how much you have hurt them. And sometimes that ends friendships. We also know of times when someone has uh, made the first move, has forgiven the person, has chosen um, to not hold what they did against you. And there is pain in that. Love what Tim Keller says. Tim Keller says this, forgiveness means bearing the cost instead of making the wrongdoer do it. So you can reach out in love and seek your enemy's renewal and change. Forgiveness means absorbing the debt of sin yourself. Everyone who forgives great evil goes through a death into resurrection and experiences nails, blood, sweat, and tears. I'm sure almost every single one of us here in this room knows and has experienced the pain and the cost of forgiveness. We shouldn't be surprised then that God went to forgive the sins of the world. And that he went to the cross and it was Jesus who went there and died there. God did not let us endure the pain that was rightfully ours. Instead, he absorbed that pain on the cross. And that came at a cost. And the question is, but why did Jesus have to be beaten? Again, the, the, the Bible talks about what the There's a punishment to sin. It's death. We've spoken about that. The problem with the world is sin and death. And because someone has to kind of pay, doesn't just miraculously disappear, Jesus did that on our behalf. When you think about uh, his arrest, when you think about his public beating, when you think about how he was uh, nailed to a cross, had, had sparks driven through uh, his wrists and his feet, that should have been me. That should have been you. That was my price to pay. But Jesus went, no, I will pay that for you. We talk about a story, a made-up story about a, a, a king whose treasurers came to him. And they said to him, King, someone is stealing money from the treasury. There's some, there's some uh, kind of corruption. Uh, someone is, is busy taking money out of the state coffers. The king says, that is unacceptable. We need to find that person and they need to pay. Make a public decree. The person caught stealing money from the state treasury will be publicly lashed 39 times. They go out. They make their public announcements. A week later, treasurer, 
Money is still being stolen. We still can't find the person who did it. All right, reinforce that. Again, make the public announcement. Uh, we will find the person. They will be publicly beaten. Sometime later, the, uh, the treasurer comes back and he says, King, we found the person who has been stealing the money. King says, great. He says, King, it's your mother. King says, all right, take her to the public square and get uh, the punisher. She needs to be publicly whipped for her crimes. The people are like, king, she's your mother. He says, I'm a just king. She stole and she deserves the punishment for her crime. And so there uh, they take the, the king's mother and they kind of tie her to the post and uh, the guy uh, with the whip is ready to uh, deal out the punishment and the king says, wait. And the king takes off his shirt and he goes and he covers his mother and he says, now go. And the, the executioner, the, 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 the guy says, but this might kill you. He says, I know. He says, now deal out the punishment. That is how we understand the cross. Jesus taking our place. Jesus paying the price that we should have paid. He was just in saying there needed to be payment for our uh, ungodliness. That is what uh, needed to be paid. Our debt. Yet Jesus goes in our place and pays the full price for that. Verse 9 through to 11. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only in this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that through whom we now have reconciliation. That is how much he loves us. And this word reconciliation, we know it very well in this country. Reconciliation is a very big word for us. Very important in our context and in our country. We know what it means to be reconciled to someone. And this is what the death of Jesus on the cross in our place for our sins did for us. It reconciled us to God. No longer are we his enemies, but we have been reconciled to him through Jesus. Huge. This is how he loved us. Talks about a word justified. If you want to write anything down, because I know Romans has some big words, this, this phrase, justified, it's a very legal kind of phrase and, and, and connotations around it, but it means just as if I had never sinned, justified. If you think about it, that you're in a courtroom and there are accusations being brought uh, against you. Craig sinned, he did this, and Craig, you did that, and Craig, you did that, and you did that, and you're guilty of that, and you're guilty of that. All true statements. But Jesus, our advocate who justifies us, steps into my place and says, but I paid for that, and I paid for that, and I paid for that, and I've paid for that, and I've paid for that. And I walk away just as though I had never sinned. 
Because what happens, and um, uh, guys call it the great exchange. I was the sinful person. Jesus was the perfect sinless person. I should have been on the cross. But Jesus made a great exchange. He went to the cross. He took my sin. He paid for my sin. And in this place, he gives me his perfect righteousness that I'm able to stand perfect before the Father, knowing and get to call him Father, enter into relationship with him, be reconciled with him. How? How does this happen? Flick back one page in your Bible to Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. It says this. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who again justifies the ungodly, just as though they had never sinned, that great exchange, their faith is credited as righteousness. We call Jesus righteous, without sin, perfect, blameless. Okay? However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. A couple of phrases to unpack very quickly there. Okay, to the one who does not work, we can do nothing to earn his love. We can do nothing to earn his forgiveness. We can do nothing to earn what we have from God. Right? This whole society where everything is rewards-based, right? Uh, how many like cards do you have in your wallet or your handbag that like, if you get to number 10, you get something free? Right, I've got one for my hairdresser, got one for uh, Seattle. Uh, I'm now getting the one for Starbucks. You know, the rewards program. We earn things, right? We do things to earn a reward, right? Everything works like that, right? Okay, you go specific medical aids to go to gym a number of times to earn back your money for going to gym. It's how things work, except with Jesus. We can do nothing to earn his love but trust, okay? We believe in him who justifies the ungodly. Think if uh, you're experiencing maybe a little bit of unease or guilt this evening, that's a very good thing because that uh, moves us to a place where we're going, I cannot trust myself or, or save myself. Jesus, I have to trust you. If you think of the thief on the cross next to Jesus who called out, Jesus, save me. What did he do to earn the words from Jesus? Today you will be with me in paradise. What did he do? What kind of programs did he do? How much did he serve a church? How much money did he give away? to the poor? Nothing. He did nothing. He did nothing but call out, Jesus, save me. Realizing that he could not save himself. That's what it talks about when it says, uh, but who trusts God, who justifies the ungodly. And their faith, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Again, so many different ways to think about it. But think of uh, a, a negative bank balance and all of a sudden it just being credited with a whole bunch of money. That debt still needed to be paid. That's what Jesus does. Takes our sin gives us his righteousness. Uh, we're reconciled to God and all we've done is saying, Jesus, I cannot do this myself. I trust you to do that. And that's what we talk about by faith. 
every single one of you uh, this evening when uh, the music team finished and I uh, got up here to start speaking, all of you sat down on a chair. How many of you checked your chair to see that it was going to hold you? None of you checked your chair. You just plonked down on your chair, believing that your chair is going to hold you throughout the duration of this time. Some of you might be a little bit nervous when I'm speaking. My very first Sunday here, I sat down on a broken chair and I bailed. It's quite bad. <laughs> That's what faith is. You just surrender to knowing that God is going to save us. That we can't do this ourselves. I want to encourage you tonight. We've spoken so much about the evidence, the proof, the truth that God is the reason for everything. Knowing that does not move us to a place where we can say that I have Jesus' righteousness, that I have been reconciled to the Father, that I've stopped trying to do life in myself and earn whatever from God, but I've just gone, it's all you. And hopefully tonight that you can see that he does all of this, the gospel is that he loves us and wants us to be in a relationship with him. It's surrendering and saying, Jesus, I'm sorry for my brokenness. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for uh, everything that I've done. I, I surrender. Jesus, I cannot save myself. I need you. I need you. Save me. If that's you tonight, I encourage you. In fact, I think it's always helpful to kind of facilitate maybe some response. So why don't we just bow our heads and move into a time of prayer. Maybe you did that a long time ago. Maybe you said, yes, Jesus saved me and was great for a while, but then life happened and, and, and your heart's gone so cold toward, towards God. Maybe if you think about what your life looks like now, you've just actually turned so far away from God. I want to encourage you. As we've been speaking through tonight, maybe you've realized you have never surrendered your life to Jesus. You've never asked Jesus to save you and, and accepted the good news of the gospel. Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe it happened for you a long time ago and you've forgotten just what it meant. And your heart is being warmed to that tonight and, and you would want to maybe kind of make that commitment again and say, Jesus, thank you. And maybe you need to do some repenting and going, Jesus, I'm sorry for how I'm living my life. I want to come right back to you. If you kind of fit any of, of those, again, this is just to help facilitate what God's been doing. Just stick up your hand and, and acknowledge that before God. Just raise your hand and say, God, that's me. I want to come and I want to surrender my life to you and I actually want to become a Christian tonight. God, my heart's cold and I want to make a new commitment to you. Stick that hand up. Saying, God, I repent of my sin and I want to come right back to you. Thanks, guys. Excited that God's working in your heart.
we're going to play a song and uh, use this as a time just to be encouraged through everything that we've been speaking through over the last 10 weeks.